Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. This is episode number 13 of the Midlife Crisis Podcast. I'm here at uh, Chop Sports Studios with Dave Sergio with producing. Uh, congratulations to Dave. He he started the, uh, what is it called? Fight Factory. Fight Factory. So uh, you got a, a lot of exciting things coming on, coming up. So make sure you follow them on the social media. Uh, I reached out to a couple guests with the basketball season, especially in the high school basketball season in New Jersey. Coming to a close, a lot of coaches, a lot of a lot of reporters are are tied up right now. So uh, it was announced a couple of weeks ago that uh, New Jersey, our own MetLife Stadium, would get the uh, bid to host the final game in the World Cup of 2026. Uh, last time the U.S. hosted the the World Cup was 1994, and it was a success. It had a lot of um, um, uh, a lot a lot of success. A lot of different teams, very popular, and also. Started the uh, Major League Soccer, uh, started uh, in 1996. Uh, back in the early 70s, I always heard about the Cosmos, about some of these other teams that that were established in the North American Soccer League. And uh, players like Pele, Franz Beckenbauer, Giorgio Canalia, George Best, and also a homegrown ca- talent like uh, Bob, Bobby Rigby came in and uh, played played for the uh, – for NALS, you also had teams like uh, the Chicago Sting, Fort Lauderdale Strikers, uh, Kansas City uh, Spurs. So this was all started by some of the NFL ownership who saw uh, back in 1966 when the World Cup was was televised, first tele- televised soccer game in the U.S. Lamar Hunt, Joe Robbie, and Jack Kent Cook looked looked at this as an opportunity, um, and also looked at this as maybe they could start something here. They uh, 1967 they had two two leagues. The NALS was started in 1968, very popular, but then also by 90, 1984, it kind of fell off a cliff. The U.S. Uh, put in a bid for, with FIFA to have uh, the World Cup back in 1994, and it they end up getting it, and it's very successful. Um, the MLS have seen some, most recently, Messi playing for the Miami club. You also had Wayne Rooney, Valderrama from Columbia, Theory Henry and David Beckham uh, coming and playing for MLS. So viewership has been coming up. Um, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about what happened with the NLS, what lessons were learned, and just kind of a preview um, for the uh, coming up, uh, the 2026 World Cup. So my next guest uh, has written a couple books, wrote a book on the, uh, the NL, excuse me, NL. NASL, and also has uh, writing a referee book. It's my pleasure to introduce Ian Plenderluth, coming from Germany. Talk a little bit about, I know FIFA just announced that they were going to be at a giant stadium, I guess MetLife Stadium, for the final. So, And I know you wrote a book about the North American Soccer League. So I just wanted to kind of revisit the time when uh, you know soccer was kind of king in the 70s, and then you know, for me growing up, it was like 1984. It just kind of fell off a shelf. All of a sudden, you heard about the Cosmos uh, selling out then Giant Stadium, and it just kind of f- fell off a cliff. And then all of a sudden, they got the World Cup in 94. So it was like a, a period there that you know, football or American soccer was kind of off the map. But I just uh, if you could just talk a little bit about, like, I guess in 1966, I guess they had the first uh, – um, live broadcast and it was the last time you really think about it, england won the world cup back in 1966 so and, and then after that they decided to start a professional league some 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 of the um 
people saw that there was a, a market here. So uh, I know you wrote the one book uh, about the NASL. So you just talk a little bit about a little bit about soccer in America. Yes, it was my um, book, uh, Rock and Roll Soccer, as uh, uh, inspired by my own youth in the 1970s, where I uh, experienced American soccer very much from afar, growing up in England. And um, but it was this weird, fascinating world of uh, plastic pitches and strange uniforms <laughs> and uh, cheerleaders. And mm. and also for the very first time, you had this agglomeration of, of star names appearing in one league, which, at the, again, at the time was extremely unusual. I remember in, in 1978 or nine, after the Argentina World Cup, two Argentine players came to play for Tottenham Hotspur. And that was an absolute sensation that uh, two players from South America came to play in, in, in the English league. But the, the North American Soccer League had been pioneering that, that approach already for years, partly out of necessity, of course, because there weren't enough local players to make it a, an interesting league for the American audience, but also uh, because they they had this vision that this was the way to to attract people was to have as many big names as possible that was it was a very logical way of uh, looking at soccer from a marketing point of view um now you're right to pinpoint the 1966 world cup as a, as a as a turning point for soccer in america which the story goes that a number of um sports owners in the US at that time saw this as a perfect way to fill their stadiums. And they watched the 1966 final. They saw lots of goals. They saw 100,000 people in Wembley Stadium. Um, it seemed like, you know, here's another great sport that we're currently missing out on and we can have our stadiums uh, looking like that. Unfortunately, it wasn't it wasn't quite as simple because you, there were a few decades of tradition um, missing. And of course, in America, it was also a much bigger challenge to create a, a nationwide coast-to-coast -coast league uh, purely because of geographical uh, difficulties and, and also because, uh, like I said, because this had never been done before. No one had really attempted to have a coast-to-coast -coast league in North America. So it was it was a bold and adventurous plan that, that uh, the first business pioneers had of, of launching soccer uh, in America in, in, in a, in a uh, nationwide league and um, it almost was a spectacular success um, after uh, limping along for this first few years um, but once the 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 major stars of the world like um, Pelé and Johan Cruyff, Gerd Müller, Franz Beckenbauer, Carlos Alberto, uh, Shinaglia and um, George Best came came to the North American Soccer League, then that got a lot of people's attention and in America and around the world as well. And and I think it's um, part, part of the, the theory in my, my book is that the North American Soccer League had a massive influence on, on the forming of the Premier League in England and the Champions League in Europe, where uh, soccer... Uh, authorities and and club owners and teams realized that uh, they'd really been failing in in their attempts to market the game to a wider audience for a long time and that there was a lot more um, cash to be made out of the game than they'd previously realized yeah well ironically talk about cheerleaders the producer where i am in the studio his mom was a, a cheerleader for the cosmos so i was just doing a preamble for it so that'd be a new concept uh for you know, europeans but uh you talk a little bit about about pele uh you know 
he was like on a tail end of his career, announced his retirement, and then he got paid handsomely by the Cosmos. Uh, and it, like, I guess the contract he signed probably eclipsed whatever he made in the previous 20 years. So what was his impact in coming to the North American Soccer League? And then that also put a lot of fans and a lot of intrigue in, into soccer itself. Well, obviously, they couldn't have found a bigger name than Pelé. And as you say, he'd retired. Rumor was it that he had uh, uh, made some bad investments, a little bit like Johan Cruyff as well, and that he needed the money. So eventually, although he had retired and vowed that he would only ever play for Santos, his club in Brazil, um, necessity possibly pushed him um, towards uh, America. And I'm sure that there was also a certain amount of curiosity at that time of his life to, to, to give it a go and see if he could indeed be the, the harbinger of, 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 of the global game to its great unconquered market. Um, so, uh, yeah, you have to give credit to, to Clive Toy, who was the general manager of the Cosmos yeah. at the time, who, 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 made strenuous efforts to get Pelé to sign and uh, was ultimately successful and and turned the Cosmos into into uh, a name that still has a lot of recognition now, mm -hmm. even decades after, after they disbanded. And so I, I think that uh, it, there's, there's no doubt that, that Pelé signing, even though his, his impact on the field was not massive, uh, in terms of his... his uh, presence and his name was an, was a huge turning point for, for soccer in North America. Yeah, because at that time there wasn't really a uh, every, all the TV coverage was regional. There was very few international stars. Like now, you have you know uh, your phone. You can watch you can watch a game anywhere or any time you want. But I mean, every, all the markets are kind of regionalized. And you couldn't ask for a bigger market at that time than New York. So I mean, definitely. Definitely made a splash, and and the Cosmos were successful, even more so. Even when the MLS wanted somebody wanted to buy the name, the the, the gentleman who owned the name didn't really want to relinquish it because of, of the lore and, and the tradition of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. yeah. But uh, I mean, the Cosmos, of course. I mean, one of the reasons why I wrote my book as well was a little bit to push against the the overwhelming narrative of the Cosmos, which kind of dominated all discussions about the, the North American Soccer League. Now, of course, the Cosmos were the main story. They were the main team. They, their story is fascinating. But I was a little bit annoyed by the, the movie Once in a Lifetime, which I thought sensationalized their role and made it look like they were the be-all and end-all of the league. And that, although they, they certainly kick-started uh, the NASL's glorious era and those few fantastic years in the late 1970s, they weren't by any means the only story happening. And, and I talked to a lot of the players and who, who'd been on the Cosmos at the time who said, well, you know, all this stuff about nightclubs and Mick Jagger and glamour, yeah, partly true. But, but for them, they were professionals doing a job playing soccer and they went home to their families and most, most of them out on Long Island in the evenings. And they didn't spend uh, a great amount of time hanging out in, in Studio 51 with, with Andy Warhol. So <laughs> uh, I, I, I think there's definitely a, another side to the league where it was a serious uh, 
soccer league, and it was a serious attempt to to establish a sport in the United States. It wasn't all just about having you know sex and business class on the airplane and that, and, that, and, that, and that kind of story, which of course we love to be titillated by, um, but really just makes up about 0.5% of the actual narrative of the whole league, which included a whole host of interesting teams such as the Tampa Bay Rowdies or the Minnesota Kicks, uh, the whole scene in the Pacific Northwest, which which endured the post-NASL years to, 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 to come back uh, and, and in a way almost rescue the Major League Soccer with, with uh, those fantastic uh, teams with their incredible support that you have up in the Pacific Northwest. So there's, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, ream of, uh, of fantastic stories about the NASL, which uh, are only even partly told in my book. I mean, I, I didn't write the the ultimate encyclopedia on that. Um, I, I wrote a story about trying to reflect why the league was significant more than uh, to to tell uh, on a game by game basis. Um, but yes, so so there was the league was much much more than the Cosmos. I mean, the Cosmos were what made it talked about. Um, they were they were the team that made it soar to incredible heights uh, very quickly and but they were also in a way that the cause of its downfall because so many teams tried to keep up with them and could not compete with the spending power of uh, Warner communication so you had a, a whole series of owners who thought this was a great new way to make money and very quickly discovered that soccer um, in America was was actually just a way of burning huge amounts of cash and they were not going to make any kind of profit out of it at all yeah so even some of the MLS teams, like you talk about Portland and Seattle Sounders and Kansas City, and uh, you know they had their start in NASL, so they they kind of continued. That was kind of where things kind of grew a little bit in the seventies. But they they have established teams in the MLS and 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 successful teams as well. So. But, uh, yeah, and and I think in, it's also true in other areas. In Canada, for example, uh, even in Florida, in in Washington D.C., where I lived for several years, um, I played on, a, 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 I ran a, a, a veterans. Uh, soccer team in over 35 league and that was a whole generation of guys that had grown up with, with the NASL and uh, the Washington uh, diplomats in the 1970s yes. they all they all remembered uh, their first exposure to soccer was through the NASL and through the huge number of clinics that uh, the, the, the teams would run in schools uh, and in communities to, to try and get the game out to people and, and make them understand why, why it is a fantastic game. And, 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 and they, they were very successful in, in doing that. Is this the first time you ever heard the word soccer? Like, where, where are the origin is? You know, and we have American football, but where, where did, did soccer come in with the NA, NASL or like, what did uh, the... Uh, Soccer, soccer was actually a very common term in England when I grew up. Uh, this okay. this snobbery about it, about you know we Brits have to call it football because the the awful Yanks will call it this <laughs> soccer. It's just not true. Then the 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 word soccer derives from association football, which was to distinguish it from uh, rugby football. And in in my uh, I have I have a whole bunch of magazines published in England in the 1970s, which were called Soccer Monthly, and I. I used to subscribe to that when I, when I was a kid. It only lasted for a couple of years. Um, but soccer was a completely common term. The Guardian used it, uh, the heading of their sports pages for several years without anybody really getting okay. complaining complaining about it. So I find that debate a little bit pointless. <laughs> okay, because I, I, I thought it was like an American term. I didn't really know where it was coming. But uh, just uh, 
the MLS, is there a big following in Europe with the MLS? I know, obviously, with Messi coming over to Miami, but... You know, I, I, start- I have noticed since uh, the start of this new season, and in, in the last week or two, there has been a lot more coverage of MLS purely because of um, Messi. Okay. Um, I have I have to be honest. In in the last few years, since, since I moved back to Germany from from the US, I've I have not really followed uh, MLS here, and there's not really much of an outlet. I think there was there was a channel that that showed it very late at night. But I would have had to get up at three o'clock in the morning to watch to watch most of the games. Right. Um, but I don't think um, MLS necessarily needs. Uh, that much attention from from Europe right now. I think I think it's it's done very well in focusing um, uh, its, its its attention on getting getting the U.S. audience on board, which is far far more important uh, at this stage of its evolution than to worry about what people in Europe think about it. And I think that's always been a little bit of a problem uh, for MLS is this kind of inferiority complex compared with yeah. the. Premier Very League true. and La Liga and you know in Europe they, they have all this tradition. I think MLS uh, is better when it just forgets about that and concentrates on doing its own thing. And then you know maybe uh, and, and 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 that's paid off in 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 terms of its gradual evolution uh, and and which is very much in contrast to the North American Soccer League which exploded and then uh, exploded upwards and then exploded back downwards again and I think MLS has has been much more careful and and taken the uh, lessons uh, from the NASL to heart and and been much more careful in the way it's 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 moved forward by expanding step by step uh, choosing its markets and its owners uh, much more carefully uh, whereas in the NASL um, that was rather indiscriminate any anybody who came along and had a, a few bucks to offer could could basically get a franchise and in, in Tulsa yeah yeah well and then that that seems to be the downfall with the the minimum, I guess, the, the salary, the minimum they had, and the, also the expansion, it just seemed like there was too many mouths to feed. They couldn't, uh, they, they, they couldn't keep up with the, the bigger markets. And then it just kind of, with the attendance going down. But the, you think, like, when it first started, and also you had, like, American college players that ended up playing. And you had, uh, so was that, was that any, you know, and now, like, when they became more successful after – Pele, yeah, sorry, had a, uh, more teams wanted to be competitive, so they started buying players. Do you think that was part of it, or is that I'm kind of just over, over uh, overthinking that aspect of one of the reasons why it failed? Well, yeah, there was a problem in getting U.S. players up to the standard of uh, uh, internationals, obviously, like Cruyff and Carlos Alberto. Um, I, I think I talked to one or two people who played on the Cosmos talking about getting yelled at by Carlos Alberto whenever they, they, they made a single mistake. Yeah. And being held to the kind of high standard was, was obviously a challenge for, yeah. for, for some young guy just coming out of college. And, and if you look at a lot of the, the soccer press at the time from the 70s, they were desperate for there to be the U.S. equivalent of, of Pelé. You know? Every time there was a young player coming out of college who scored a couple of goals, there was a headline, is, is this our Pelé? Kyle <laughs> wrote uh, Junior, for example, who played, I think he played for the Cosmos. So that was that was very hard uh, for, for young players to live up to those expectations and basically being thrown in at the deep end. It was okay in the earlier years of the league, I think, when, when the standard was not so high and when a lot of the, the, the foreign players came from the English third and fourth divisions. Um, but, soon, but when the standard went up, it, it, it did become difficult. But that, 
that's also not to say, I mean, a lot of players did manage to hold their, hold their own. And the standard was obviously not, you know, not every player was as good as Beckenbauer or as good as Johan Cruyff. So um, they, they, did, they did have their opportunities to shine and be and be part of uh, integral parts of the teams. And each team had a minimum number of, of American players they had to to field in order to try and foster the game and foster the development of, of young U.S. players. Um, and that ended up, I think, uh, with the whole project of the Team America in 1983, which was based in Washington, D.C., which was an attempt to have the U.S. national team play within the North American Soccer League, um, which also unfortunately failed because a lot of the best U.S. players didn't want to leave the teams they were playing on. It was, they, they felt that it was better for their development if, you, for example, you were playing in, in the Cosmos yeah. alongside a player like Johan Naskins of, of, of Holland, yeah. um, then, then you probably thought you would learn more from that than you would by being on, on, on Team America. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. So it was 40 years ago, NASL ended up folding. But that kind of started in 1987, USA put the bid in for the 94 World Cup. And they end up getting getting that big. And I remember at that time it was a success. Like the you know uh, it, 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 the, the U.S. World Cup was a, was a, a successful tournament. You had good crowds, good competition. You had big names, and that kind of sparked the MLS to talk a little bit about the '94 uh, World Cup, uh, the, the World Cup back in '94. Yeah, well, in 1994 was was a, was a meeting of minds. It was the U.S. Um, suddenly getting the recognition from FIFA that it that it always craved during the NASL era. Uh, the league had fought league and the U.S. Soccer Federation had fallen out with FIFA a lot um, because of uh, the rule changes. The, M the NASL wanted to do its own thing um, with you know, with, with the not wanting to have games tied, um, different offside laws, um, uh, all all those kind of innovations that the NASL uh, tried out, but which did not um, meet with FIFA's approval. Uh, of course, the turning point was the 1984 Olympics when the soccer tournaments in, in Los Angeles drew huge crowds. And all of a sudden, FIFA realized, oh, my, you know, there, there is a potential massive audience in, in, in the U.S. for international soccer. And, uh, and, and with the, no, the number of teams increased at the tournament 24, FIFA suddenly saw big dollar signs and it, they realized that the, 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 uh, well, this is a, a market that we, yeah, yeah. We've, we've ignored so far yeah. because partly down to, to snobbery, partly down to, to ignorance. And um, so when, when uh, you know, the, the, of course, the, the, I remember when the tournament uh, venue was announced in Europe in the 1980s, uh, uh, the European soccer establishment, of course, was horrified. You know, this is the same thing we just talked about with this difference between soccer and, and football. Yeah. Uh, and nobody wanted to believe that the the Yanks who play baseball and the, the, <laughs> that terrible form of rugby, yeah. how are they possibly going to put on our fantastic yeah. traditional soccer fest? And um, everybody, I think, was was. I think a lot of people were actually pleasantly surprised. Uh, what a what a great tournament that was, and and termed and not just in standard of football, but how well organised it was, and and how um, when you have these stadiums already there in place, how much more sense it makes to to use a market like America for a major tournament than it does uh, to build 
lots of white elephant stadiums in countries. Mm -hmm. uh, you have countries like Brazil and South Africa now who are suffering with huge costs running uh, empty stadiums at a loss or stadiums that are not even used at all that were just built for three or four games at one tournament. It's an absolute, it doesn't make any sense at all. So it's easy to see why the 2026 World Cup is coming back to North America and um, in, in uh, Canada and Mexico as well. And uh, I think I think we'll, most people are looking forward to, to this tournament very much, especially after the, the controversial um, venues of Qatar and Russia in the last two yeah. World Cups. Very true. Um, just talk about a little bit the U.S. team. You know, we had the Stars back in 94 to end up beating uh, um, uh, Columbia, which is, you know, turned to be devastated to one of the players. But, like, you, know, you have you have a lot of household names that played over in, in Germany, like Pulisic. Uh, and, like, to talk, what do you think U.S. chances? Because, I mean, in early part of last century, they were successful. And then it just kind of fell off. But you think that that – that they're climbing that 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 ladder in order to, uh, of of kind of breaking through into the, the, the I, I think I think it will be fascinating to see how the U.S. team uh, performed at this World Cup and uh, because you uh, you have uh, also a generation of younger players that are, are establishing establishing themselves very well in European soccer, which has happened before, but I don't think we've had such a um, lively, uh, uh, exciting crop of players. Uh, coming through as we have at this point in time before. So um, U.S. chances are of progressing far into the tournament, I would say, are good. I, I would, ever since I did an interview with the Washington Times probably over 20 years ago now, and I said that the, the U.S. will never win the World Cup, and I, I got a lot of flack for that in, 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 in local soccer circles in D.C., so I'm not going to say uh, whether I think the U.S. can win it or won't win it. Uh, and, you know, in a knockout tournament, any, anything is possible, yeah. and, and uh, you know, we saw Morocco progress very far. In the last World Cup, we've seen Greece win the European Championships in 2004 when nobody was expecting them to. So, yeah, it, I mean, it, Croatia, they're a smaller country. They, you know, they, they made it to the final. So, just, so Croatia so. has an incredible record now, having, yes, uh, twice semi finalists and once in the final for a country that, uh, you know, has a population, um, you know, one, one. Well, same as Scotland, <laughs> which, yeah, is my, so, which is my country, and so, we have ne we've yeah. never even got out of a group stage. <laughs> yeah. so, um, what else? What teams do you look at? Obviously, um, you know some the major league. But what what teams do you see, and what players do you think the people that are have an interest here in this country? Because you know, I'm talking to you from from Germany. That interest, mm. like what players do you think and teams they should probably watch in some of these warm up matches and some of these tournaments coming up. Well, it's, you're always going to go back to these old favourites, and, and and I'm going to look at it rather conservatively. Uh, I mean, the, the strongest teams in Europe right now are are Spain, France, uh, and England. Uh, Germany and Italy are both suffering a bit of a slump. Okay. Um, it, but we're still over two years away from the tournament, and a lot can happen in international soccer at that time. You can suddenly have a whole um, the slew of young players come through, and all of a sudden they're making an impact. Uh, Germany is hosting European Championships this summer. Their team has been 
in crisis now for a few years, despite having yeah. a, a selection of, of world-class players. They don't seem to be able to get that combination right on the field. They don't seem to be able to pick the 11 players who can make it work together, despite there being a, a huge amount of, of talent available. Um, so they're always one to watch out for, but uh, at the moment, uh, nobody nobody in this country is, is giving them a chance of either winning this summer or in 2026. Um, uh, obviously, in, in South America, you're going to be looking at, at, at Brazil and, and Argentina. Sure. And, um, but it will also be, I, will, I think what everybody would love to see is some, some uh, emerging nations coming from, from Asia and from, from the African continent as well. Where we've just been a really exciting African Nations Cup where any team uh, could have won it. Uh, Ivory Coast, the hosts, ended up, ended up winning it after losing two of their group games, but there were there were, there were a whole uh, selection of other teams there that um, surprised everybody. Uh, a lot of the favourites got knocked out early on in the group stage, like um, uh, I think um, Morocco and Egypt suffered suffered yeah. early exits, and uh, Niger, uh, <coughs> um, Cameroon as well, I think. But so it's it's, it's one of the great things uh, about the World Cup is, is is the way that some teams develop and evolve over the course of the tournament. You talked about Croatia before. Nobody usually expects them. To, they're not in the in the list of favourites before a tournament, yeah. and yet now three times in the last uh, twenty five years they they have progressed to, to to the latter stages and been very close to winning it. Um, and that that's one of one of the one of the fantastic things. I think that's why people uh, really look forward to to the tournaments, not just because they're a feast of of sport and soccer, uh, but also because they bring so many so many uh, nations and peoples and cultures together, and usually in a very uh, relaxed uh, atmosphere. Uh, yeah. uh, and so. Um, I, I'm I'm not, I'm not uh, two and a half years ahead of the tournament. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give you any any firm names. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I guess you got burnt <laughs> before, so you don't want to. You know, so, but like you know, you even talk about Egypt, like uh, Salah. I mean, you get, you get a couple players around him. I mean, he's he played for Liverpool. He's a, spe a special player. So it's just uh, you know, and you're coming from from Egypt, that's not really, from what I understand, it's not really a hotbed of football talent. So. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think that, uh, again, if you, if he had the right, if he can, if they can find the right players to play around him, then yeah. uh, a country like that is always uh, going to have an, an outside chance. Um, I read a very good article actually in uh, one of the French soccer magazines, which was a, a preview of the African Nations Cup, where one of the, uh, the former players appealed for the African nations to, to, to stop being afraid of losing. Uh, and, and he even cited Morocco's statistics at the, at the World Cup where they got to the, to the, to the semi-final um, and how few chances they created and how few shots they had, saying if, if African countries would show a bit more um, enterprise and, and courage going forward, then, then maybe they would actually uh, have more chance of winning rather than being terrified of, of, of losing and, and always playing for the draw or the penalty shootout. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I'm I'm hoping that that the, by the time 2026 comes around, um, I, I do think 48 teams is is too many for a tournament. I think 32 was the ideal number. I think that's a huge mistake. The FIFA they've, they've, they've overegged the pudding there, unfortunately. But uh, at the same same time, the more nations you have, I guess the greater the chance is is, is of a surprise and something and and and, and shock results. And then. Um... What about the finals being in New York? Ninety four was out in Pasadena, California. Mm -hmm. Sonny, I mean, I'm coming 
about 20 miles away or, I don't know, I guess about 30 kilometers from uh, from MetLife Stadium where the finals going to be held. What's your opinion of being in New York? Big market, I guess, a security risk, you know, uh, in this in this climate. But what's your what's your opinion about having well, the final in, in the mean, MetLife Stadium? I'm a I love uh, <laughs> city of New York. I love visiting there. I always love visiting there when I when I live in Washington D.C. So it, it has definitely has that thrill uh, of the exotic uh, about it. And I mean, who doesn't want to go? To New York City at some point yeah. in in their lives. Unfortunately, the final's not actually in New York City; it's in <laughs> it's in New Jersey. Yeah. But yeah. it's 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 close enough. Let's let's uh, wipe a sponge over that, as the Germans yeah. say. Um, so I, I think that that just certainly makes it more exciting from the public point of view, and and I'm sure FIFA uh, will will milk that for all it's worth as well. Uh, it's nice to have a final somewhere that we can get excited about in, term, in terms of the actual um, location. I think in, in Qatar, for example, if you were watching the tournament, they had eight stadiums built, but honestly, you didn't really care which stadium they were playing in. <laughs> they yeah. were all within a few miles of each other. And the, the, in terms, there were some interesting designs of the stadiums. I think if you were there, actually there as a fan, but if you were watching on television, it, 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 they were all much of a muchness and uh, it was kind of irrelevant in which, where, the, where the games were being played. And one of the great things about the 2026 tournament will be, will be the, uh, the way it covers the expanse of the North American continent and, and, and the, the different characters of cities uh, you, you'll have, uh, which will certainly be talking point um, when it when it comes to, to to the schedule yeah and then um just a little bit about um, um your new book uh it says reffing hell i know you have a, a new book out i think you're, you're promoting just talk a little bit about that the new book reffing hell what, what's that what's that about because you know if in a post-covid world i guess a lot of my friends who have kids playing in rec sports they had a problem with getting referees and you know that i don't know if they're having the same thing over in europe where some of the parents get too involved they're too vocal and then and then just is that what the book's about and again that's I, that's, I just, that's uh, very much very much what the book's about i started <laughs> i started as a referee in the states um when my one of my daughters was playing on a travel team and i needed to uh train as, a, as an assistant referee and I found myself getting assigned to tournaments. So I trained as a, uh, I enjoyed that very much. So I was trained to be a, a central center referee. And when I came over to Germany nine years ago, I'd been refereeing by that point for six or seven years in the US and really enjoyed it. So I wanted to continue um, my way here as, as a way of being involved in the game, as well as being a coach and a, and a part-time player. Um, I was in for a bit of a shock when I got to Germany and the, the, the culture was, um, a little more intense than it was in the US where I'd mainly refereed youth games and 50% of those games had been uh, girls games, which uh, in general are, are a lot easier to control. And I found myself refereeing men's games at quite a high level in, in Germany and was just astonished at the level of abuse um, that I got on the field, from the side of the field, from the oh, coaches, <laughs> from parents and youth games. So as a way of, of coping with this, my wife got fed up of me complaining every time I came home on Sunday night. And she said, look, either 
quit or shut up. <laughs> I always get uh, very good good advice from my wife. So yes. I started to write a blog in order to 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 let out my feelings on a Monday morning because it, it was quite distressing some of the time. It was quite stressful. Uh, and also there were a lot of funny situations too, which... And I wanted to give an idea uh, through my writing what's actually going on inside a referee's head uh, during a game at, at, at the amateur level. So I tried to be very honest in, in what the, the, the sometimes slanderous thoughts uh, were that were going through my head as I was being uh, chewed out by the parents yeah. or, or the coach or, or the players who had no idea about the rules of the game. Um, so, and that ended up running for much longer than I, I expected. I thought it would maybe... Uh, sort of after a year, maybe the stories would just start to repeat themselves. But uh, the, the, every game seemed to seem to have its own narrative and its own uh, incidents, which um, sometimes I would just write about particular rules. Sometimes I would write about particular characters you, you meet on the field, archetypal <laughs> characters, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, often it was just a recounting of the way things escalate um, without any kind of warning sometimes and, and how you find yourself as a lone referee because they have no assistance um, because there are just not enough people who are willing to do this yeah. this fairly terrible job. Um, <laughs> suddenly find yourself alone trying to calm down as, as many as 60 or 70 people, uh, including spectators and, and other interested parties. Um, so I've, I've, ri I've written a book. Uh, the book is a compilation of the best entries from, from the blog. And I, I, I think uh, it, it's gone down very well with, with a lot of refereeing colleagues I know who have been able to relate <laughs> to, to the experiences in there. So it's, it's published by a small company in the UK called Halcyon Publishing. Okay. And uh, you can find them on the internet and buy a copy direct from them, which um, makes it, it much easier for an independent publisher to survive. <laughs> than if you buy it on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, you're also involved with Soccer America. Is that, and that's like an online? Uh, um, yeah, so Soccer America has been going, it's America's, uh, you probably know America's longest running soccer publication has been going since the late 1960s um, in, in various forms. And it's now a, a pure, like most uh, publications, is now purely online. So I've, I've written, uh, I used to write for them when I, I lived in the States and, and uh, now I've started a column there every week for the last, uh, I think, five and a half years I've been writing now, pretty much every week. Um, they, they give me carte blanche to um, pontificate on whatever topic <laughs> I, I feel like. So I, I tend to try and give a, a American readers a point of view from, from Europe now as I'm, I'm less in touch with the U.S. soccer scene. And um, uh, I give vent to my opinions there if, if anybody's interested. Yeah, well, that's where I found you on your on your blog. So, but uh, it's always, it, it, it just I would, that, that kind of lured me in. But uh, just talk a little bit about about your background. You said you're Scottish, you lived in the states. Now you're living in Germany. So, just talk a little bit about your personal connection with the game of football or Americans call soccer. So. Yeah, my, my parents are both from Scotland. I actually grew up in the east of England. They, uh, they, they moved to England before I was born. And um, my local team 
play currently in the English third division, Lincoln City. <clears throat> I was watching them last night, actually live uh, on, on television, thanks to the wonders of the uh, internet. <laughs> and uh, that was a classic thing of going to the game with my dad when I was six years old and, and falling in love with the, with the whole stadium experience. And uh, I played all through my school, university, uh, my college years, and um, later in life, in my 30s, when I was living in the U.S., uh, my daughters both became interested in soccer. I coached their teams and became uh, a coach and, and a referee at the same time. And now to, uh, I'm still involved um, uh, as a referee in Germany, and I coach a, a girls team at my local club here in Frankfurt as well. Um, we've actually been building up a girls. I was surprised actually when I came to Germany, given the, the prominence of the German women's national team, how few uh, clubs actually ran girls teams. So the club okay. I was involved became involved in as a coach, first of all, coaching boys teams. Um, we put out uh, an advert for tryouts for a girls team and 30 girls came to the first session. So we now run four girls teams at the club and <clears> which after having not a single team in the club yeah. for 70 years that was that was female and i my hope is that we can have a run a women's team there too at some point in, in a couple of years down the yeah, line uh, well that's impressive i know in the states like the girl some of the girls teams mirror the, the boys teams they're, they're just as popular and you know population and also success but uh i, I know uh i'm getting you late at night you're over in germany I just want to leave you a couple points but the 1966 that's the last time england won the world cup uh you know 60 years ago you know, what's what's the what's the secret success or what do you think has to happen for England kind of to, uh, to you know, because you, you think of football, you think of England, obviously you think of the, the big the big three, you know, Germany, England and, and, and France. But like uh, but what, what what's missing or what what what's going on in England that they haven't re they, it's been such a long drought. I think they're probably closer now to having the kind of setup that, that would allow them to win the tournament um, than they have been for a long time. Um, the, the problem for England after 1966 was that it was, a, it was a tournament on home soil. It wasn't that great a tournament. They didn't have that great a team, but they played all the games at Wembley. They won. They thought, okay, we're the world champions. We invented the game. We've always been the best at this. We don't really need to do anything now. They didn't develop their game uh, in the same way that uh, uh, Italy, Spain, Germany, all these uh, countries had uh, far more advanced coaching techniques. Uh, England just thought they could go out there with blood and guts and, and, and English heart and <laughs> yeah. win just by virtue of being English. And that mentality lasted for, for decades and, and it, it, partly fueled by the media, which also seemed to share this bizarre point of view that the, the English could win just by being English. Uh, I think now that with, with the advent of the Premier League and so many foreign coaches uh, coming in to coach uh, in that league, was, along with the seeing different styles of play, different kinds of players, advances in diet, for example, and advances in coaching. The whole game in England has finally been professionalized thanks to, yeah. uh, thanks to that influence from the outside. Whereas back in back in my day, uh, it, it was all about drinking and and you know yeah. going going on a tour to Mallorca at the end of the season, yeah. <laughs> being out on the rad yeah. and e eating fish and chips before the game. That kind yeah. of thing was just. <laughs> yeah. It's great to look back on now as a, as a kind of yeah. nostalgia, but but yeah, um, but I mean, but also I guess in in American sports, I mean, they had that here. 
but also you want to kind of keep in keep yourself in shape because there's so much more money to be made. There's, there's a lot of money to be made out there uh, for some of these, some of these players. So exactly. <laughs> the, the, the players cannot afford anymore to lead that kind of lifestyle at that time. They could get away with it because <laughs> partly because everybody was doing it. Um, <clears throat> uh, but now um, you have to be at, at, at extreme level of uh, fitness. I, I mean, I, th I think uh, most of the players from the 1980s would very much struggle in today's game uh, if they were thrown back into it. So um, <laughs> there's, there's, I, I think England uh, has, has, is another country that has a lot of really exciting uh, uh, young players. And uh, I, I honestly wouldn't be that surprised if they, if they go much further in this, in this World Cup than they well, have in, previously. Well, it's good to hear. Um... Uh, what about venues, though? What, what do you think as far as what, what are some of the best? If somebody wants to go and visit some of these club teams, what do you think some of the best venues that you've been or, or that somebody has to, has to go has to go see? Like, uh, uh, and uh, as far as football teams, either in the states or abroad. So, in in um, in in England, I would say uh, some of the best. Uh, venues i go to are actually the smaller grounds in the, in the lower leagues you can find some fantastic soccer experiences that, that won't cost you the world if you go down into the third fourth and fifth divisions and uh, even when you found these little charming grounds and small towns that, that have crowds mm. of three or four hundred there's something about that that experience in, in england and in germany as well there's also this 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 pyramid which takes you down to to village level uh, and I've refereed in a lot of these small grounds in front of maybe 50, 100, 200 people. And, and it's actually, it, you feel like you really are at the, at the grassroots of the yeah. game. And, it, it, and, and it's quite magical in many ways. Um, if you want atmosphere, I would recommend German stadiums as, as a better bet than, than uh, the Premier League because okay. the Premier League has become a little bit sanitized and overpriced, whereas in Germany, you still have a, a very vibrant fan culture based around chants and singing and, and okay. stand, standing areas. Um, I don't have much experience of, of going to games in uh, Italy or Spain. So that's, okay. that's uh, Scotland as well, I could I would say, is another, is another uh, Glasgow, uh, the Glasgow clubs, or also uh, treat yourself to some, some places like Kilmarnock or uh, Sterling, yeah. Dundee, um, with all, also if it makes it for some, for some fascinating trips and, yeah. and, and underside to, to football culture, soccer culture that you might, you might not otherwise experience on television. Yeah. And then uh, also, uh, I mean, Ryan Reynolds and uh, the other actor have that Wrexham, that mm. Wrexham series. It's quite popular. So that looks like a small, intimate town, small into the stadium. But I just want to leave it. But thanks, Ian. Thanks for, you know, staying awake over in Germany and speaking to me. But just, uh, just so I don't, uh, how do you, how do you, the correct spelling of your, of your, of your, or correct saying of your name? I don't want to butcher it. So, <laughs> no, just, Ian Plenderleaf. Plenderleaf. Okay. Yeah. And what do you have coming up? What do you have? I know you have the book out. What else? Do you have anything else coming up? Or I guess oh. you can watch it in, in Soccer America, just your, your blog. So, yeah, um, I'm working on a couple of book projects that are very much at the planning stage right now. So, uh, we'll, we'll, I'm going to see what's going to if anything will come out of those. But book publishing is a notoriously uh, fallible industry, I think you could say. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard to know what, what the trends are going to be yeah. and, who, and who's going to be interested yeah. in whatever ideas you come up with. But yeah. uh, we'll yeah. hopefully be something else in, in, in next year. 
Well, thanks, Ian. I hope maybe one day have you come back on the show, maybe when the uh, the World Cup comes a little bit closer and things start picking up momentum. But I really appreciate you reaching out to me and uh, and you know uh, speaking to me from Germany. It's really uh, you know and just kind of open opening a world that you know I think the U.S. is especially you're start starting to, to learn about. But, but thank you and, uh, and good luck with the book. So it's I, been I a pleasure. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much for having me on the show. All right. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Ian, for staying later in Germany. I'm wearing my Everton uh, Langdon Donovan jersey. He hasn't been playing there, but still fits. So I figured it would be a good, good, good something to wear. Uh, look for my next episode. Uh, we're going to get back to basketball in March. I'm going to with baseball coming around the corner. I'm going to have a baseball episode. But like I said in, in the intro, some of the coaches and the writers and people that are involved in basketball with Mark Madges are, are preparing for that. So look forward to uh, a couple episodes coming up right around tournament time. Uh, and also kind of a, a debriefing of what happened in the New Jersey State Tournament. And some some coaches, high school coaches, are agreed to come on. But with the season in uh, in full effect right now, uh, at the end of February, they uh, they had a, a other responsibilities. I respect that. Uh, like, subscribe this episode. Also follow me on social media, at Whalebones, on uh, X, and on Instagram, and also on Facebook, Midlife Crisis Podcast. But thank you for your uh, your time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Yeah.